Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If you uh, have a Bible you want to open, as we just read, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in, uh, in verse 6. And as you turn there, I want to uh, make sure we're, uh, we're all awake, get kind of the mental juices flowing by playing a game called Would You Rather? All right? And so you're probably familiar with this game before someone asks you these two things and asks, would you rather do this or that? And so, uh, number one, you can shout out the answer, all right? This is a, a time where we're going to have some participation. So, would you rather have to wear a business suit or a bathing suit every time you leave the house for the rest of your life? All the kids said bathing suit. All the adults said business suit. Uh, okay. Would you rather know how you will die or when you will die? Would you rather have Superman's speed or his strength? On every one of these, we've had different answers. Okay, imagine there's some sort of global pandemic, not that that would ever happen, but imagine there is one and all of the church's leadership is quarantined, but we still wanna have services and we ask you to step in. So would you rather step in for the sermon or to lead worship? Again, mixed. All right, now, sometimes uh, would you rather questions are difficult because both of the options are great. For example, would you rather have the gift of flight or the gift of invincibility? But it doesn't matter, right? Both of them are good. If I said I'm gonna give you either of these and you would be happy with either of those, all right? Or would you rather earn a million dollars a year for the rest of your life or someone gives you $50 million one time sum this afternoon? Again, you can't go wrong with either of those. So some of the times, both of the options are great, but most of the time what makes would you rather a fun little icebreaker conversation uh, game is the fact that uh, both of the options are really difficult. And you don't really want uh, either of them. And so would you rather cut off one of your hands or one of your feet or something like that? In fact, most of the time, what makes the game interesting is that neither choice is going to be terribly tempting. Although one of my favorite would you rathers ever is from Saturday Night Live, uh, back when it used to be uh, somewhat funny. And, uh, and fake Harry Carey, uh, played by Will Ferrell, he asked Jeff Goldblum whether he would rather be the top scientist in his field or, anybody remember? have mad cow disease. Would you rather be the top scientist in your field or have mad cow disease? And so Jeff Goldblum obviously said, I'd rather be the top scientist in my field. And Harry Carey's response was, oh, I was worried you were gonna say mad cow, all right? Well, I mention all of this because in this passage, we get a bit of a would you rather. Uh, and some of them are going to be both good options. Either of them are actually good options biblically. Would you rather be single? or would you rather be married? Now that might seem like that is so obvious, but biblically either of those options are uh, valid and, uh, and good. Others of them seem like they should be no-brainers, like Mad Cow versus uh, uh, renowned scientists. So would you rather remain in an unhappy marriage or would you rather get divorced? Would you rather sin or would you rather be faithful? These should be really easy and yet they often aren't, all right? So here's what you're gonna find out about today's text. Today's text isn't going to be as fun as Zach's sexy marriage text last week, right? So this is gonna feel a little bit like good cop, bad cop, right? He gets up and he tells everyone, get married and be really intimate with your spouse and everyone leaves and everyone's happy and then this week I get up here and say, some of you might need to remain single and some of you need to endure really bad marriages, all right? And so good cop, uh, bad cop. 
the reason, though, that uh, we need to do this, A, is because we just preach through books of the Bible and because all of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture is inspired, which means we need to hear this text. Whether you're single or married or divorced or, uh, or widowed or remarried or whatever it might be, whether you're wasting your gifts, whether that's singleness or marriage, whether you're stewarding them really well, God's word is not irrelevant. We can't just skip over it as if it doesn't apply to us or it's not helpful for us. We need to hear this. We need to believe this. We need to submit to it regardless of our individual circumstances. So since we need God's grace to do that, let's pray and then we'll actually open up the text. I ask you first just to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you grace. Maybe you uh, come and, and even as you uh, read over this text, you uh, don't want to talk about it. Maybe there is a sense in which you lament your circumstance and you don't want to hear God's word, would you repent of that? Would you ask the Lord to help you? Would you pray for us uh, corporately, congregationally, that the Lord would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that's quick to uh, submit? And then lastly, would you pray for me? So Father, we ask for your help. We pray at the end of the day that we would see things biblically. We would see things rightly, that we would not shape the Bible to fit our whims, but that our will, our hearts, our desires, our actions would be shaped and guided by Scripture. And so I pray that you would help us this morning. Uh, Ask these things because you're good and you do good, uh, even when we don't necessarily feel as though your commands are good, they are. And so I pray that you'd help us to believe that this morning. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verse six. He begins and says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Raise your hand if you happened to be here last week or you caught it online or something uh, like that. All right, so what was the subject matter of verses one through five? Well, subject matter, verses one through five, were marriage in general, and then in particular, the command to be intimate within marriage, all right? There is no such thing as uh, a, uh, a, a, a chaste, uh, a celibate sort of, uh, uh, of marriage life. And so uh, we've seen, and we will continue to see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, that sex is a huge problem for the church in Corinth as it's a problem for the church today. In Corinth, you have a guy who's sleeping with his stepmother. You have other guys who are going to temple prostitutes. So on the one hand, you have some people in Corinth who are libertine. They say, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. My body, my choice. I can sleep with whomever I want. It doesn't matter because that's what grace does. Grace just kind of gives me this license to sin uh, all the more. That's on one hand. Uh, you have those, that contingent in the church there. On the other hand, you have some others in, uh, in Corinth who are on the, maybe the opposite end of the spectrum. They swing the pendulum from thinking that sex doesn't really matter into thinking that sex is dirty or sex is bad, even with your own spouse. We talked about that a little bit last week, all right? This is an example of what's called an over-realized eschatology, which is just a fancy word. What does that mean? Well, an over-realized eschatology is when you take an aspect of the not yet part of the kingdom and you pull that into the already. 
You make that a part of the already. So uh, if you've heard of health and wealth, prosperity gospel sort of preaching, that's an over-realized eschatology. They take the fact that God has promised absolute and perfect and complete healing, and they take that, and they don't recognize that's for the resurrection, and they pull it into the present. They name it and claim it uh, even now. So that's an overrealized uh, eschatology. So here is the argument of this overrealized eschatology as it relates to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that we won't have sex in the resurrection, so we shouldn't have it now. You should just avoid it now. You should disregard it now. Now, I think everyone in this room is smart enough to see through that fallacy, but unfortunately, that type of thinking is actually really common in evangelical churches today. For instance, I once heard a pastor argue that we won't have guns in heaven. Why not? Uh, I'm sorry. We won't have guns in heaven, so therefore, we shouldn't have them today. Or you might hear the argument, there are no borders in heaven, besides the fact that there's actually a wall, but we should therefore avoid borders today. So that's kind of the logic. Just because we'll do something in the eschaton, in the resurrection, therefore we should begin to do that today. So let's follow that logic for a second and see if it holds up. Because there are other things that the Bible says that we won't have in uh, eternity. For example, we won't have sickness. So does that mean that we should just get rid of chemo today? Does that mean that we should get rid of Advil and Robitussin? Heck, why don't we get rid of doctors and hospitals while we're at it? What else does the Bible say that we won't have uh, in the eschaton, in the age to come? What about crime? So does that mean that we get rid of police officers and we get rid of laws and we get rid of prisons? Now, I know there's a contingent of our society that would say, yes, we should do that. I'm not even gonna argue with it, that's absurd, that's silly. If you don't know why, come and chat. We'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. Or what about voting, right? The kingdom that is to come isn't this democratic republic, so do we get rid of voting now? Or one of my favorites, according to Revelation, we don't need lamps because Jesus himself will be our light. Does that mean we go home and throw out our light bulbs? No, obviously not, all right? I could keep going. Revelation also says we won't have oceans, we won't have the sun, we won't have the moon. So that's a really bad idea that I'm going to the beach next week with my family, right? I should avoid those things. I think you get the point. Even if we won't have sex or marriage in the resurrection, that doesn't mean that those aren't good gifts for today. That doesn't mean that we disregard those today. In fact, Paul explicitly commands those who are married to have sex. We saw that last week. Sex isn't just this reward, it's a right within the context of marriage. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that audio. It's really important. And that's the context. So let's look at today's verse. Paul writes, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. But what does that mean? Well, I think Paul is simply saying that his advice on getting married is not this universal command. In other words, though he's just told people that they should get married, that's the context of verses one through five, that's not a universal mandate because singleness is also this good gift. When it comes to the topic of singleness versus marriage, there are at least two ditches on either side of the conversation that we need to avoid. The first is that over-realized eschatology that we mentioned earlier, this denial of marriage as if singleness is the, the really godly option. That's what all the godly people are single. And if you can't be godly, then you should get married. That's one side. That's one ditch to avoid. But others swing the pendulum to the other side as if singleness is some sort of curse 
or singles are second-class citizens of the church. They're just immature believers, but marriage is really where you mature or something like that. Yes, Jesus was single, but he's the son of God, so that doesn't count. Yes, uh, Paul was single, but he's an apostle, so that doesn't count. For everyone else, though, you have to get married, or you should get married if you're really holy. That's swinging the pendulum uh, to the other way. In fact, I've heard people imply that we're actually commanded as believers to get married, particularly when they talk about this thing called the creation or the, or the cultural uh, mandate in which God tells Adam and Eve that they should what? Anybody remember what they tell them? To be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. So the argument is, well, how do you do that if you don't get married? You can't, at least not righteously. Therefore, if we're going to be faithful to this creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, we have to get married. This is a command. This is a binding command for the church. That's the argument that some make. The problem with that is that it misses this fundamental difference between Israel and the church. What is the primary way in the Old Testament for Israel to make disciples? There isn't a whole lot, when you read the Old Testament, there isn't a whole lot uh, about sending out missionaries to evangelize the Babylonians or the Assyrians. There are a few exceptions, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh. Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth and so forth are uh, converted. But by and large, the primary way that the covenant is extended is through procreation. You enter the covenant through birth, right? That's why you circumcise babies in the context of Israel. But that's not the case for the church. We don't enter the church by birth, but rather by rebirth. And we don't primarily extend the gospel uh, by, uh, uh, by procreation, but rather by proclamation. This is why we don't baptize babies. Am I saying that we shouldn't disciple our own kids? Of course not. But I am saying that we don't bring people into the covenant community simply by giving birth to them. The son of a Jew, regardless of their faith, the son of a Jew is a Jew. The child of a Christian is only a Christian, not by birth, but by rebirth. And that, uh, that comes only through proclamation of the gospel. So what about the cultural mandate? What about the creation mandate? Do we no longer have this obligation to be fruitful and multiply? I think we absolutely do. But the New Testament is going to re-envision that mandate as being not primarily or merely physical, but rather spiritual. In other words, I think that the Great Commission is the church's fulfillment of the cultural mandate. By making disciples of all nations, go and make disciples of all nations. You see that similar language to be fruitful and multiply. All right, so by making disciples of all nations, we therefore are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So again, what's my point? Am I saying that having kids is not important? Absolutely not. Am I saying that discipling your kids is not important? Absolutely not. But I am saying that you don't have to be married and you don't have to have kids in order to be fruitful today and multiply today. You can even be faithful while barren or widowed or single or whatever. Regardless of your marital status or your fertility, you can do the work of bearing fruit for the kingdom. As Calvin said, when the, the Catholics mocked the fact that all of his children had died in infancy, Calvin's response was, well, then I shall be content with raising up spiritual children. That's kind of the idea here. So Paul's main point here in verse six is simply to say, marriage is not this absolute universal binding command. In fact, in some sense, he will say singleness is even better, but he'll clarify what he means even further in verse seven, where he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. 
But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, for centuries, scholars have had this uh, sort of internal debate as to whether or not Paul was married at one time. Given his thoughts on uh, divorce that we'll talk about in a little bit and then again next week, it seems highly unlikely that he was ever divorced, but some argue that he was a widower because that was kind of the cultural norm. Within Jewish culture, the average age for a woman to get married was 13 to 16 years old, whereas uh, for a man, it was about 30. That sounds... Super gross to us, right? In fact, it's actually illegal. Um, But that was kind of the cultural norm then. But then again, Paul was probably converted around the time that he was about 30. So perhaps he he just hadn't gotten around to getting married yet. At the end of the day, whether Paul was always single or whether he was uh, widowed or something is just speculation, right? We really don't know that he was, uh, whether he was ever married or not. We just know that by the time he was writing this, he was, uh, was not. And that condition, that condition of singleness for Paul was not something that he just kind of begrudged. In fact, it was a joy. In, in fact, it was his preference. We'll see that later in the chapter, that he finds his singleness to be this advantage uh, for, uh, for ministry. I, knew, I, I found that out uh, this past week. My wife, my kids, uh, all of them were sick, and that meant my productivity really drastically dropped, right? I had to work from home a bit more. I had to help suction out noses, which is the grossest thing ever. I can do everything else. I can't do snot. And, uh, and so I had to hold my uh, son down for eardrops and all of that fun stuff that you love to do as a parent. What's my point? My point is, if this sermon is no good, blame my kids, right? It's not my fault. <laughs> But seriously, that's part of the point that Paul makes in regards to singleness. He doesn't have to check with his wife before heading out to do ministry. He doesn't have to stay home from work to watch his sick kid or worry about how he's gonna provide for a wife and child. And that's a benefit for his ministry, especially as an apostle. Not for the sake of his comfort, not for the sake of his convenience. Paul's singleness for him, that isn't this attempt to maintain his own freedom or build up his uh, 401k. It's not so that he can live his best life now and drive the nicest chariot and wear the finest sandals or he can binge watch Real Housewives of Philippi or something like that. His singleness is not for his own sake. Instead, it's for the sake of the gospel. He recognizes that singleness for him, especially in his role as an apostle, gives him this opportunity to be free to focus entirely on gospel stuff. From Paul's perspective, Jesus can come back literally at any point, all right? He can come back any day. So there's this imminence and this passion to his ministry. His thought is basically this, if I knew that Jesus were coming back today, what would I do? And his answer is, I wouldn't get married. I would go and I'd share the gospel. So that's Paul's life. And in light of that, he gladly embraces singleness. But notice he doesn't make his preference a prescription, Notice that we tend to turn our preferences into prescriptions, but Paul doesn't. He has a wish, but he doesn't turn that wish into a command. In fact, he explicitly says it isn't a command. We talked about this kind of issue when we preached through Romans 14 a couple of years ago. We introduced this fancy theological word, adiaphora, which basically refers to things which are neither commanded nor condemned in Scripture. The uh, classic example in Romans uh, 14 is eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's an example of adiaphora. You can do it, you cannot do it, you're free. It doesn't really matter. 
The same though applies to things like drinking alcohol in moderation or uh, dancing or playing cards or something. And marriage is another thing that fits into this category as well. God neither prescribes nor prohibits marriage or singleness as a universal rule. In fact, both are described as gifts. Luther, in commenting on, uh, on this, uh, this section, says marriage is just a mu- as much a gift of God, St. Paul says here, as chastity is. What he means by chastity there is just singleness. So depending on your opinions, depending on your own presuppositions and your own preferences regarding singleness and marriage, this text might push on you a little bit. You might need to wrestle with that tension. Depending on your circumstances, you might repent You might need to repent of thinking that the grass would be greener if only you had this different gift. Some singles are so anxious about marriage that they waste their singleness. Some spouses are so disillusioned by the concept of of their own marriage that they despise what they've been giving. And if that's you, you need to repent. You need to hear the word of God. You need to be grateful for God's grace in whatever form he gives you. Because he's a good father and he only gives good gifts. Your singleness is not a curse. Your marriage is not a curse. It's God's grace to you. Let's keep going. Verses seven through eight. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now we've just spent the past maybe 10 minutes or so saying neither singleness nor marriage is inherently better, we'll find there is a sense in which it is better, actually later in chapter seven, but neither is inherently better, and yet we read this passage and it seems to imply otherwise. uh, The way that it reads, at least in English, is almost like Paul is saying, I guess you can get married if you really have to, almost like you should feel guilty because you're the weakest link. Singleness for the best and marriage for the rest or something like that. So is that what Paul is actually saying? And I don't think so. But I acknowledge that it feels like that way, or it feels like that for at least two reasons. One's grammatical and the other is cultural. First, grammatically, notice that word cannot. It says, if they cannot exercise self-control. That makes this sound like this is some sort of weakness. You should be able to exercise self-control, but if you can't, then you can, uh, you can get married. But the original Greek literally doesn't have the word cannot, it just has the word not. It could literally just be translated not exercising self-control. So translators have to then decide whether he means they're just not exercising self-control or they cannot exercise self-control. And notice the, uh, the difference in the connotation, the way that it feels If this were to say, if they do not exercise self-control versus if they cannot exercise self-control, that feels differently, like Paul is making this sort of value judgment on those who choose marriage. In addition to that grammatical factor, there's this uh, cultural factor. We see that in the word good. Paul writes, it's good for them to remain single. So then we think it must be bad to get married, right? We, that's what we tend to think of these contrasts. It would be like going to Starwood Cafe in the Adriatica, which I'm at roughly five times a week, and someone asks, what's good there? Now, if you're with Tim, he'd say nothing, all right? But I'm less of a snob than him, and so I'd say maybe the club sandwich or the Iron Man egg white omelet or whatever it might be, those are pretty good. Do I imply then that everything else is bad? 
Again, Tim would say yes, but no, right? That's not what I'm intending in that uh, moment. Likewise, Paul's point in saying that singleness is good isn't to say that marriage isn't good. It's helpful to understand Roman culture in order to really understand what's happening here. In this cultural context, in the cultural context of first century Corinth, uh, in the Roman Empire, marriage is the norm, right? Not the way that it's the norm in our society, it's just expected, but there is this intense social pressure to be married. I don't mean like how maybe your parents, I didn't get married till I was 34, 35. My mom who's in this room, she can attest, she probably occasionally made some comments about how she wishes I was married or whatever. I mean, I don't mean these little comments that your parents might make. I mean actual intense societal pressure for you to be married. I remember talking with some buddies years back and we had this question, how long uh, should you wait to remarry if your spouse dies? Not as a rule, right? We believe in the sufficiency of scripture. Scripture hasn't said anything on this particular topic. So technically, you could remarry within seconds of your spouse dying. That's weird. I think that's unwise. That's really suspicious, right? (laughs) I think you killed your spouse. But it's not necessarily sin, right? So we're having this conversation, not from the perspective of making this sort of rule, but just general wisdom. What would we counsel someone? And I said, I think you should wait at least one year. I had another buddy who said, I think six months. Someone else who said nine months, right? Then this one guy who said he would never remarry. He couldn't imagine having anyone else for a wife, right? There's always one of those guys in every conversation. So that night I was talking about my day with my wife and I told her what my buddies and I had discussed and anyone want to guess what Casey, my wife said? So you're saying you get married within a year? (laughs) Which is not what I said. Other guys said six months, get mad at them, (laughs) right? In fact, I said the longest amount of time except for my weird friend who said never, all right? I said one year is the absolute minimum. I'm sorry, yeah, the absolute minimum. She heard me say it's the absolute maximum right? Because she's a a bit of a pessimist. Why do I mention that? Well, because Roman society had these industry standards on uh, on marriage and remarriage, right? Number one was that you were expected to marry. That was actually a part of your responsibility. That was a duty that you owed to the culture. That was something you owed to the city and to the, uh, the area and to the empire and so forth. That wasn't seen as an individual choice. Like we tend to think of, uh, of marriage as being this sort of in, uh, intense uh, individual choice. But you rather had a responsibility for the sake of the community. That was the first social convention. The second one, if you were a widow, you were expected to remarry within one year. Again, not at least one year, but within one year. That's not the minimum, that's the maximum. And then number three, if you were divorced, you were expected to remarry within six months. Again, that's the maximum. Notice in this text, by the way, Paul will upend every one of those cultural circumstances and expectations. Now, why was there such pressure within Roman culture, within Corinthian culture? For a number of reasons. Number one, for legal reasons regarding things like property ownership and inheritance rights and so forth. Also for familial reasons in order to bear children, which was really important to the propagation of the society. And then finally, related to the previous one, for logistical reasons, because of a lower life expectancy. The average age for a woman to die was by the time she was 30. 
particularly because something like one out of every five pregnancies had terminal complications. So there was no time to lose. You had to get married as soon as possible. So there's this ton of cultural pressure to be married. So I want you to think about this. Corinthian culture would have said, quote, it is not good to remain single. Now take that in mind and now read what Paul is saying here. When Paul says it is good to remain single, he's pushing against that cultural norm and expectation. His intention here isn't to say everyone should be single. He's already made it clear, not all have that gift. His intention is to expose though this lie of this cultural norm to the reality of the goodness of singleness. So with that in mind, I think it, it helps to better understand what Paul is actually doing here. He's not intending to create these two tiers of Christians, right? You have the super holy, the super holy single spiritual varsity, and then you have the slightly less faithful JV marrieds or something like that. Notice, by the way, our culture tends to invert those. Neither of those are actually good though. Instead, what Paul is saying is that either option is good depending on your individual calling and your circumstances. In fact, he's going to explicitly recommend that some widows should remarry. 1 Timothy 5.14, I would have younger widows marry, build, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So the question is, is singleness better or is marriage better? That's kind of like asking, is a truck or a minivan better? Is a hammer or a screwdriver better? Is a cab or a pino better? Or which bear is best, right? Black or, or, or brown bear or whatever. Well, it depends, right? Likewise with singleness or marriage, it depends on your calling, it depends on your circumstances. So the issue isn't really which is inherently better, but rather which is better for you, right? And how do you answer that? Quite simply, do you have this gift of singleness? Which is a two-part question. Number one, are you currently single? If you answer no to this, you're not currently single, you're married, you don't have the gift of singleness, right? That part's pretty easy, right? This isn't a get out of marriage free card. You can't go to your spouse and say, you know what? I have the gift of singleness, so I'm out. We'll see that in the next couple of verses about divorce. If your spouse dies or if your spouse divorces you, abandons you or something, you might later possess the gift of singleness, but not now. So question one is really important. Are you single, right? Now, even if you answer yes, some people stop there. They say, if you're single, you have the gift of singleness, and yes, there is a sense in which your singleness is a gift in this season, even if you're 16 or something like that, and that you should steward that for the sake of the kingdom, but that isn't really Paul's point here. Instead, let's look at question two of this two-part question, do you have the gift of singleness? Question two is, are you content with being single or do you long to be married? I think a lot of singles, when they hear about this gift of singleness, it doesn't sound like a gift, it sounds like a curse. If it's a gift, it's like one of those, you know, white elephant gifts that nobody wants. It's a gift that you just hope you can re-gift to somebody else. And if that's you, you probably don't have the gift, right? I say probably, I don't want to speak absolutely, but in general, it seems as though from what you read in scripture, it seems like the gift of singleness includes the idea of being contented and grateful for that gift. Don't try to begrudgingly submit to singleness, but if you're content, if you're satisfied with singleness, Maybe you have that gift, so you should steward it well. There's no shame in that. In fact, it's actually a noble and good calling. In fact, later on in chapter seven, Paul's gonna say it's preferable uh, in some sense. For example, I have a buddy, a really good buddy, 
uh, used to be a, a member here, but then he, uh, he moved out uh, uh, away. And uh, he's in his late 30s, and he genuinely loves being single. Again, not so he can, you know, sow his wild oats or something like that, but for the sake of ministry. He loves the fact that he has the freedom to just show up at someone's house on the turn of a dime whenever they need help. He loves the fact, in fact, he's actually been overseas on a number of long-term mission trips or whatever it might be, all right? So Paul will talk about that sort of preference in chapter seven. Singleness is preferable for the sake of ministry. 1 Corinthians 7, 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. Or 32 through 35, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. All right, we'll talk about that whenever we get there in a couple of weeks. But let me just sum up this section on singleness before we move on to the question of divorce in the last two verses. Three points on singleness uh, from this text. Number one, singleness is neither prescribed nor prohibited. It's neither prescribed nor prohibited. Second, singleness, neither singleness nor marriage is inherently better, both of advantages and disadvantages. Both are gifts by God for his glory and for our joy. Some people are tempted to exalt singleness as being this really spiritual option. Others are tempted to think of marriage as being kind of graduating beyond the immaturity of singleness. Neither of those views are correct. If you hold either of those views, you should repent of that wrong worldview. And then third, the singleness that Paul is discussing here is celibate, chaste singleness. He explicitly says it's better to marry than to burn. So if you're single and you're sexually immoral, God's command is clear, get married. Don't just repent of that lust. If you burn with lust, you should get married, all right? But if you're content, if you're chaste, then singleness is a good option and maybe that's an option for you. In other words, I think there are two potential God-glorifying circumstances that Paul is going to be discussing in verses one, which we talked about last week, all the way through verse 10. You can either be married and, uh, and be intimate, have sex, have even lots of sex, or you can be single and you can be celibate. Either of those is a good option. You can't be married and celibate, barring some sort of a you know, really tragic accident or something like that, and you also can't be single and sexually active, all right? Now, having said that, let's, let's move on to marriage, divorce, and remarriage in uh, verses 10 through 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. All right, before we address the main point here, I wanna deal with this little parenthetical comment you see here. It says, not I, but the Lord. We'll see something similar uh, in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 7, 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So he says, not I, but the Lord here. And then two verses later, uh, he says, I, not the Lord. And, uh, and so years back, I was talking with some elders at another church, talking about divorce and, uh, and remarriage. And I quoted verse 12. And one of the elders said, well, that's not morally binding. That's just Paul's thought. It's not God's because he says, I, not the Lord. And I thought, how in the world are you an elder? Right, really briefly, 
That's not at all what Paul means here. When he says, not I, but the Lord, he means, I'm just quoting Jesus, all right? When he writes, I, not the Lord, he means, Jesus never talked about this particular circumstance, so I'm giving my apostolic authoritative command. The point isn't that Jesus' commands are authoritative and Paul's aren't, but rather the point is that Jesus didn't give explicit instructions on every single thing while he was preaching, but the Spirit has given subsequent revelation through the, uh, the apostolic commands the, and so forth. So, bottom line, everything that we're reading here is God's word. Whether Jesus said it or Paul wrote it is irrelevant to the question of its authority. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord, all right? So this is a command. So what is the command? He says, husbands and wives should not divorce their spouses. By the way, the word separate in this context just means divorce, right? I realize in our culture, we make a, a distinction between those two concepts. You can be separated from your spouse and not divorce, but those terms, as they're used in, uh, in Scripture, are synonymous. For instance, when Jesus speaks of divorce, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, in Mark 10. So uh, Paul's command isn't about separation, as we tend to think of it. There could be extreme circumstances involving abuse or something like that uh, where temporary separation is appropriate, but that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about what we would think of as actual divorce. And divorce was pretty common, as it is in our society, it was pretty common in Roman culture. In fact, in Roman culture, men and women had the right to divorce for just about any reason. Speaking of how common this was, the Roman philosopher Seneca jokes that uh, people leave home in order to marry and they marry in order to divorce. And it was pretty easy to, to attain. In fact, simply saying the phrase, I probably can't pronounce this correctly because I don't speak Latin, but it's tuas res tibi habito or something like that, which loosely translates, get your stuff and get out. If you simply say that, uh, that phrase, that constitutes a legally recognized divorce in Roman culture. It's like the episode of The Office where Michael Scott stands up and yells, I declare bankruptcy, right? That's basically what it was. That's Roman culture. Jewish culture was different in a couple of ways. First, because only the man could initiate a divorce, right? The Mishnah, which is the collection of Jewish tradition, said the man that divorces is not like the woman that is divorced, for a woman is put away with her consent or without it, but a husband can put away his wife only with his own consent, so Jewish culture was different in the sense that only the man could initiate it. It was also different in regard to the circumstances permitting divorce. Again, in Roman culture, you could pretty much divorce for any reason whatsoever. But in particular, first century Jewish culture was torn between the teachings of two schools of thought. On the one hand was a rabbi named Hillel, and he taught that a man could divorce his wife for just about anything. The classic example that's given is even if she burns his toast, or his bagel, as it were, all right? On the other hand, you have Shammai. And Shammai was another rabbi, and he taught that divorce was only permissible in the case of unchastity, in the case of some sort of sexual impropriety. So Jesus was actually asked about that ongoing first century uh, Jewish debate in the Gospels, and I think that's what Paul is referring to when he says, not I, but the Lord. I think what he means when he says, not I, but the Lord, is that Jesus has already addressed this explicitly. So I'm just quoting him. 
When I give my command in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm just giving the command that Jesus has already given way back in Matthew and Mark and uh, in Luke. All right, Matthew 19, three through nine. The Pharisees came up to test him and asked him, test, uh, t- came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Notice that sort of a Shalel versus, uh, uh, Hillel versus Shammai uh, dispute there. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You see now why Paul would say that those who are married shouldn't divorce because Jesus said that already. He says, two shall become one flesh. He says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He says, divorce is a result of hardness of heart. He says, divorce and remarry is akin to adultery, etc. Now, Jesus does give an exception He says to divorce and remarry is adultery. He says except in the case of sexual morality, porneia, which refers to uh, actual physical infidelity either during the marriage period or during the betrothal period for uh, Jewish culture. And that's the only exception that Jesus is gonna give. Paul will give one more kind of exception that we'll see next week. In the entire New Testament, there are two and only two exceptions to the general prohibition of divorce and remarriage. The first is actual physical infidelity, and the second is actual physical abandonment. We'll talk more about them next week. In addition, we've written multiple blogs on whether or not the Bible allows for divorce in other contexts like pornography or uh, abuse or emotional abandonment or things like that. We posted those actually years ago, and to this day, they continue to be our most common blogs. So if you think the Bible allows for divorce in other circumstances, beyond actual physical uh, infidelity and actual physical abandonment, if you think it allows for it in things like pornography use or really egregious pornography use or uh, emotional abuse or physical abuse or whatever it might be, please go and read those and, uh, and then come and chat with us. We'd love to, uh, to talk about those. But I don't wanna focus on the exceptions this week because our text isn't giving any exceptions this week. We'll get to those next week. Our text uh, today is just giving the general rule We'll deal with the exceptions next, next week. Today, I just want to try to get at Paul's train of thought. We've already seen at the beginning of the chapter, some uh, Corinthians are neglecting their marital responsibilities. They're married, but they're celibate. And Paul says, you can't do that. That's not a good option for you. If you're married, you don't own your own body. In fact, you owe your spouse a marital right. There is no option of being married but willingly celibate. Again, barring some sort of a truly extenuating circumstance or something like that. If you're married, sex is a right and a responsibility. So that leaves the Corinthians in quite a predicament if they're married, but they really don't want to have sex. They can repent. They can just start having sex with their spouse, but nobody ever wants to repent. So maybe they just think about it and they come up with this loophole. Maybe they think, I'll just divorce my spouse. Then I can be celibate. I can be super spiritual. Paul says you can't do that either. As Jesus said, don't get divorced. But then he says this, if you do divorce, notice that parenthetical uh, statement there. If you do divorce, you have two options. You can remain single 
or you can be reconciled to your spouse. In other words, as bad as it might be to initiate divorce on unbiblical grounds, it's even worse to get remarried when your divorce was on the basis of unbiblical grounds. Don't compound one sin with another sin. Don't compound the sin of divorce with the subsequent sin of remarriage. Two wrongs don't make a right. Beware that sort of pragmatic way of thinking. I've already committed one sin, now I'm stuck. What's another sin? I'll tell you what it is, it's sin. It's cosmic rebellion against your creator. You might think, but that sounds so mean. Because it sounds mean, you can't be what God wants. God can't really possibly want me to stay married. You don't know how bad my marriage is. And you're right, I don't know. But God does, and he wrote this. And he wrote it for your good. And God's commands aren't about restricting your joy, it's about liberating you to experience it. We spent a bit of time on this earlier, why it's so important that we don't think that Paul is just giving an opinion in his writings. When we approach the text, we do it with a presupposition. And our presupposition is that this is the very word of God. It's therefore inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's sufficient. And that's step one. But the doctrine of scripture doesn't actually stop there. We don't just simply say, this is the word of God, so I'm gonna begrudgingly submit to it. Because the second presupposition that we should bring to the text anytime we read the Bible is that whatever we read is ultimately for our good and for our eternal joy. So when we come to any command that we don't like, any command that feels mean or feels antiquated or feels harsh, we can either approach it as critics, kind of standing in judgment over God's word, I don't like that, that doesn't feel right, therefore I'm not gonna obey. Or instead of approaching it as critics, standing over God's word, we can approach it as children, sitting under it, knowing that God is and does good, even if he never gives you a spouse, even if your marriage never gets any better, it only gets worse. So I wanna end with this. In every decision that we face in life, whether that's regarding singleness or marriage or divorce or remarriage or whatever it might be, we have a choice to make. A kind of would you rather, if you will. Those questions are, would you rather be faithful or unfaithful? Would you rather have some fleeting feeling of happiness or eternal fullness of joy? Would you rather trust God's word or trust your own feelings? Those are the options. Let's pray. Father, I confess that uh, this word is hard. In fact, when, when your son is, is talking about this with his disciples, their response is, this saying is hard. And his response to them is that we need grace. And so I ask for grace. I ask for the grace to be able to believe that singleness is good and marriage is good. I ask for the grace to be able to endure difficult marriages or difficult seasons in marriage. I pray that you would help us as a congregation to think biblically about all things, whether singleness or marriage or divorce or remarriage or uh, being a widow or a widower or whatever it might be, Lord, that we might think according to your scripture and that we might believe that doesn't merely mean that we think it's true, but we think that it's good. And so I pray that you would help us to do these things because you are good and you do good. So we ask these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name.
Amen.